Well, it's a joy to be here. What a wonderful thing God is doing in your church. Now, um, I am not ill. My throat doesn't hurt in any way, but my voice sounds real raspy. I uh, went out to look at some property in Oklahoma the last, uh, last week, and a chill wind blew, and my throat just closed up. So it sounds odd. So give me some in the monitors, and I'll try not to strain. But I want you to know there's nothing wrong with me. It just sounds funny. So it's uh, just my little trick to keep you awake. Well, I, uh, I want to report to you that your pastor was a good student. I only had to make him stand in the hall twice. Both times it was for passing notes. He's a, he's a wonderful young man, and I know that you're proud to have him. Is he a good preacher? Is he a good preacher? Great. If he's a good preacher, then I taught him everything he knows. If he's a bad preacher, that is on his father. Well, uh, I'm delighted to be here tonight. Let me just give you a brief infomercial on Oral Roberts University. If you are someone that you love and care about, is interested in pursuing an undergraduate or graduate degree, we are a regionally accredited liberal arts university in Tulsa, Oklahoma, more than 3,200 students, 60-some-odd undergraduate degree programs, several master's degree programs, and two doctoral programs in education and ministry. I hope that you will consider us. Go to oru.edu on the internet, oru.edu, and look us up. It is an exciting, exciting time at ORU. We are growing. We are 100% debt-free. It is exciting. In addition to that, we have just done $40 million worth of renovation on our campus. The campus looks beautiful. I'm going to tell you something. You can get a pretty nifty shoe shine for 40 million bucks. The campus looks great. Our enrollment is growing. Our faculty morale is sky high. Student morale is high. Everything is going great. Our men's basketball team is undefeated in the Summit League. We just we beat South Dakota State like a two-year-old at a Walmart last night. It was so exciting. And uh, we, uh, we went to Cincinnati and beat Xavier. Oh, it's just been a great year. We play Division I sports. So if you have a son, now listen to this, if you have a son who is seven feet tall, do not wait for the altar call. Stand up and come to me right now. In fact, if you have a son that can bat 500 from either side of the plate, we also play baseball, so please come to me. We're delighted uh, with all that's happening there. It is an exciting, exciting time for us. A lot of people think that a Christian university is the same thing as a Bible school. A Bible school is specifically to prepare people for the ministry. Uh, Crossroads Bible College is to prepare people for the ministry. That's what, that's what you do with a Bible college. But a liberal arts university, we have everything from engineering and pre-med. We have one of the highest admit rates of uh, any pre-med program in the United States admitted into, uh, into medical school. Our engineering program is great. Our business college is booming. And uh, we have wonderful, wonderful faculty. I can't say enough about it. I hope that you will look us up and go online and click. Uh, if you are a high school student, click on whole person scholarship. Let me just give you a little insight here. Ask your pastor, if he will, to nominate you for the whole person scholarship. We want the best and brightest from this church. 
you nominate them for a whole person scholarship. You come to Tulsa for an interview, and if you are nominated by your pastor from this church, I'm going to tell you something. If you are nominated and you are selected to come to Tulsa, it means that you will receive some level of scholarship in the whole person program. Once you get out there, then the level of the award is what is decided. But I know your pastor, if he nominates you and then you're invited to come to Tulsa for the interview, you're guaranteed some level of whole person scholarship. So I hope that you will click on whole person scholarship, www.oru.edu. It's an exciting, exciting time for us. We have a brand new building that's starting uh, tomorrow. Today's Sunday, yes. Too many towns and too many days. Uh, tomorrow morning, we break ground on a beautiful $12.5 million student center. So those of you that are in high school, we are building this building for you. They told us you were coming, and I said, start the building. we got to have it ready when the kids come from Indianapolis. I don't want that building half finished. And the best thing is, I have $12.5 million in the bank. We will build it for cash, and it's going to be one beautiful building. Now, just one other thing. There is a product table in the lobby. Which way? Somebody point. I'm, I came in the back door. This way, there's a product table out there, all kinds of books, CDs, all kinds of things like that. I want you to know something. probably doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny personally for speaking here, preaching here, the product table, anything. I, it's not some big sacrifice on my part. I'm paid a gorgeous salary as the president at ORU. Trust me, Jesus is taking care of Brother Mark. It's, but it gives me the opportunity to donate all the rest to a missions program called Global Servants. So all that you spend at the book table goes 100%. There's no smoke and mirrors. We don't withhold 1% for overhead or something like that. 100% of the money that you spend at the product table goes to the foreign missions program of Global Servants. Uh, they have mission work in Thailand, a girl's home there, and uh, a girl's home and 30 churches in West Africa. I won't mention all the products that are out there, but a few years ago, I signed a five-book contract with Charisma Books to produce a small little bite-sized book every January, each January for five straight Januaries. In the middle of that, I also wrote a book called Character Matters, and that book is also out there. The next time that I agree to write six books in five years, I want somebody to slap me. I got finished with that contract, and I realized that I had written everything that I know and a bunch of stuff I wasn't sure of. But those, little five, those five little books are out there. The first one is called Nevertheless. It's probably the most encouraging book that we ever wrote. And the second is called Dream. This has been a huge seller with uh, young people particularly. It deals with the dream of your life and also the interpretation of sleeping dreams. The third is called Power. It deals with the mystery of power for good and evil. The fourth is called Holiness. It may not be at all what you're thinking of when you hear the word holiness. I got a precious letter, Pastor, from a retired Methodist minister. He said, I read your book on holiness. He said, at last, a humor-filled and joyful book on holiness. I can die happy. So I'm glad we could send the old boy off with a smile on his face. And then the fifth is called Resurrection. It deals with releasing, receiving and releasing the power of God's resurrection life in your life. Many Christians 
forget that there's more than one resurrection in the Bible. And this deals with those resurrections and the power of God's resurrection. They're all out there, and I hope that you will enjoy those. If you don't enjoy them, send them to an enemy. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the book of Acts. I'm going to just begin reading at Acts chapter 2 in just a moment. Let me just give you a wee bit of an introduction. I'm a, a lifetime student of the discipline of communication. I've devoted my life to it in, in every aspect, uh, studying in linguistics, in the written word, in preaching, in, in media, radio, television. We're on TV four times a week. I produce a radio program. I, I'm a, a lifetime student of the discipline of communication. I know what some of you are thinking. If he's been a lifetime student of the discipline of communication, it seems like he'd be better at it. But you don't know how bad I might have been. I, I believe that if you take the entire discipline of communication and boil it for a hundred years, the quintessence, the, the, the cream that would rise to the top, the, the entire discipline of communication can basically be expressed in four things. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. If you get any of those variables wrong, it can all go wrong, really wrong, really fast. I heard about um, a couple in Michigan that were going down to Florida on holiday. At the last minute, the wife had to stay behind for a meeting at her job for one day. But the husband said, I'll go on and check in the motel, and then you come on tomorrow. So they did that, and then he got in the motel, and he decided to email her at her work and let her know everything was okay. And he sent the email, but he couldn't quite remember his wife's work email address. But he thought he could come close. How many of you know that with email, close is like no good? The email did not go to his wife. It went instead to the elderly widow of a Pentecostal minister who had just died the previous week. And when she got the message on her, on her computer screen, she just fainted out in the floor. Her grown children came in and found her unconscious in the floor. And this message was on the screen of her computer. Dearest wife, just got checked in. <laughs> Am awaiting your arrival. Tomorrow. P.S. Sure is hot down here. Now, see, you can think that you have communicated clearly, but the message that you transmit may not be at all the message that's received. And the message that is received may not elicit the response that you had hoped for. Every married man in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. Every time you open your mouth, you are standing on a trap door and you know it. Men and women do not speak the same language. You want to talk about a communication barrier? Men and women may use the same words. They do not mean the same thing. They do not mean the same thing. Women ask questions emotionally. Men ask questions informationally. So the husband says, how would you like to go out to eat tonight? And she says, why do you ask? He is now cosmically confused. <laughs> but 
because I'm hungry? Is that okay? Because they are, they are asking, they're approaching the question in a totally different way. If you ask the wrong question, you cannot get the right answer. There's no way to get back to it. If you ask the wrong question, you can't get the right answer. I, I heard about uh, two guys from Indiana that were driving through uh, Georgia on their way to Florida. And uh, they came into a little town in North Georgia, and the sign said, Welcome. And they began to argue about how you pronounce the name of the town. The one said, It's Dahlonega. The other one said, It can't be Dahlonega. He said, I know a little something about Native American language, and you've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It can't be Dahlonega. It's Dahlonega. The guy said, I don't know anything about Native American language, but I'm telling you, this town is called Dahlonega. And they argued about it, and they came to the point where they decided to place a bet. Evidently, they were not from your church. And they decided to place a bet on this, whether or not, and they put up some substantial money. And they said, we'll just go into a little place of business here, and we'll find out if the guy lives here, and then we'll ask him to say the name of this place, and however he says it, that settles the bet. So they pulled in, went into a place of business there. They went to the guy at the counter, and they said, were you born here? He said, born and raised here. They said, well, then we would like to know, how do you say the name of this place? Just say it slowly, naturally, but say it the way you've always said it. He said, you just want the name of this place. They said, just say the name of this place. He said, okay, Dairy Queen. (laughs) You see, you've got to ask the right question. Now, there is a question in Acts chapter 2. That, that is actually the crucial question of the chapter. But it is almost impossible to answer. And in fact, when Simon Peter answers it, he doesn't exactly answer the question. He identifies the reality that they are seeing, but he does not explain the meaning. Because the question that's asked is, what meaneth this. What meaneth this? What, when Peter answers, he does not give the meaning. He identifies the reality that's happening. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now just pause right there in verse 4, and let me just say something to you. You will hear Christians argue over whether or not it ought to be Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Listen to me. It is an absolutely asinine argument. There is nothing to argue about. The phrase in in Greek is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. It means wind or breath or spirit. We have a lot of words that come from the same root meaning in Greek. Um, Pneumonia. If you have pneumonia, it's a disease of your breath. If you have a pneumatic drill, it works on the power of compressed air. So it's pneuma. And you could translate it, spirit, wind, breath of God. So Holy Spirit, a ghost in a sense. But don't think Casper. It's when a You've got to get that out of your mind. So the Holy Ghost, there are people that will say to you, you know, if you don't say Holy Ghost, you're not talking about, if you say Holy Spirit, you're a liberal. It does, don't, please. 
Actually, both of them wrong. You should say pneuma. Next time anybody asks you whether it's Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, just say pneuma. They won't have a clue what you're talking about, but you'll feel better. And they were all filled with the pneuma and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. Now listen to the words. Every person, every man heard them speak plural in his own language, singular. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia, in Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, in Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya, about Cyrene and sojourners of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were perplexed, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine, new wine, cheap wine, pop skull wine. These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Good old practical Simon Peter. I like this. No highfalutin theology. They said, look, these people are just babbling drunk. He says, now think about it. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. As the Jews count time, they start the dawn at 6 a.m. 1, 2, 3, so it's 9 o'clock in the morning. He says, at 9 o'clock in the morning, imagine how much wine it would take to get 120 people so stoned by 9 o'clock in the morning that they can't even talk plain. He said, there's not that much thunderbird in all of Jerusalem. These are not drunken as he supposed, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my, hand, on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Put your hand on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta noche. Porque te necesitamos mucho. Te glorificamos. Por favor, úsame a su gloria si es posible. Y lléname con tu Espíritu Santo. Y llena mi boca con tu palabra. Glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Por favor. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We laud and magnify your holy name. We ask, Lord, that you will speak to us. Brush aside by your almighty power. Every barrier to divine communication. Rush in over the threshold of our souls. Speak to us by your might in the inner person of every person here. Those who are eager to hear from you, give them a word. Those who are resistant, rush in upon them, O oh God. I believe you for this. I thank you for it. That when we leave here tonight, 
we will say one to another, now surely the Lord hath spoken unto us. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God, amen. It is my personal conviction and my understanding of New Testament theology that everything that is revealed in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is or has already been revealed in the Old Testament. That it was there, and now it comes to, to effulgent reality. Now it comes to revelation in the, new, in the New Covenant. It's like this. How many of you remember, uh, this is a very youthful congregation, but I wonder if there's anybody here that remembers in elementary school, they used to use these flashcards. Anybody remember flashcards? Raise your hand. There you go. That's good. That's a good number. You know why we quit using those? You know why education, modern educators quit using those? Yeah, because they actually worked. And um, <laughs> we wouldn't want anything to interfere with our theory, uh, especially practical uh, reality. Uh, but they worked like this. The, the teacher uh, would hold up the card. You remember? Three plus one, and there would be a blank place at the bottom, and you raise your hand, four, four, four. And she'd turn, and on the back was the answer. The reason flashcards work was because it so familiarized the victim, I mean the student, it so familiarized the student with the question that when they saw it in another context, i.e., on a test, they said, this is the same question that I had there. Three plus one, it was four over there. It's going to be four today. And they were familiar with the question because it had been revealed to them in this context. They saw it, understood it, and received it in this context. So I believe that the Old Testament, I know it's kind of a funny way to say it, but the Old Testament is a series of divine flashcards that every sacrifice in the tabernacle speaks to the cross. The fire above the cherubim speaks to the Holy Spirit. That all those things, so that when it's revealed finally in the New Testament, that people said, I recognize this. We saw it in another context. Now, what happened in the upper room? There's... 120 Jewish believers. Jesus has been crucified before their very eyes, dead, buried, raised from the dead, walked with them, talked with them for 40 days, teaching them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He has gathered them to an outside, to a, a hillside outside Jerusalem and raised into heaven to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The sky opens and they watch him raise and sit down in his throne in the sky and the cloud falls behind him. And now they are left behind with this one command. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and them that believe and are baptized shall be saved and them that believe not shall be damned. That's what Jesus said. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And by the way, he said, I'm leaving. And he left them to go to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. They retire to the upper room for a 10-day prayer meeting. And they pray. Now, we don't know all that they pray. But I think I understand human nature enough to know what they prayed. Don't you? Suppose that God said to you, I want you to go into the whole world, 
I want you to preach the gospel to every creature that you see and how well you do it under the level of anointing that you do it, how effectively you do it, will determine their eternal condition. If they believe you and believe the report you give, they'll be saved. If they don't believe you, they will be eternally damned. Does anybody else feel the weight of that but me? So don't we know, don't we know what they prayed for in the upper room? Don't we know? God, we want to obey you. We want to obey you. We don't have the power. We don't know how to do this. God, we want this. When Jesus was here, we felt his presence. We felt brave. We felt courageous. He's gone. Now, God, help us. Do something. I don't think they had a clear idea of what God was going to do. I don't believe... On this day, this is the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is not a Christian word. We use it now as a Christian word. But it's the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Seven times seven is 49, plus one is 50. So 50 days from Passover to the Jewish Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost from the Septuagint. Any derivative of five has pentagram, pentagon. And the Pentecost is therefore that... Five weeks, uh, um, uh, seven weeks, five, seven times seven is 49, one is 50. So 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. And they're there for a Jewish feast, Pentecost. A Jewish feast, Pentecost. They've had Pentecost every year. They think they're going to have Pentecost every other year. I do not believe that they woke up. See, we have the idea that the people in the Bible are acting out of script. That they knew all this. See, we think that Peter woke up that morning and said, whoa, second chapter of Acts today. <laughs> Man, this is so exciting. I don't believe that that day they knew anything different out of the ordinary. Any other Pentecost celebration was going to happen than what they were used to. And all every day on the Feast of Pentecost, every year for all of their whole lives, for all of the thousands of years since Moses established the feast. I don't believe that five minutes before nine o'clock that anybody in the room was sitting there saying, whoa, five to nine, (laughs) this is the day. I believe that it caught them completely and totally off guard. Now, here's what happened. Imagine that right now, I'm not going to tell you that everything that happened in the upper room is going to happen in here. I'm not telling you that. I can't promise you it won't, but I'm not going to promise you it will. But imagine that right now, the sound of a tornado rips through this room. Not a hair on your head ruffled by a breeze. Just the sound of a tornado rolls through the room. Wouldn't that be exciting? Might scare the liver out of you, but wouldn't it be exciting? I bet nobody slept. What do you bet? No sooner is that gone than right up here in the top of the auditorium is the boiling, troubled fire of the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory. A fire, visible, it breaks off and there is a visible, physical tongue of fire that comes to rest over every head, over every head in the place, over your head. A visible tongue of fire dancing in the air over your head. You say, whoa, no thank you, I'm just visiting. Doesn't matter, you get one. No sooner does that go away then you stand up and you find yourself proclaiming the glory of God with such boldness 
You never thought of yourself as an outspoken believer. You never thought of yourself as somebody that just could stand up and talk about who God was and about His power and His grace and His goodness. And you stand up and you begin to proclaim the glories of God. And then what would happen is what would happen right here. Is that the word of that would get around Indianapolis. And soon you wouldn't be able to park the cars People would jam the parking lots. The newspaper would be here. The media would be here. And they would be asking you, what happened in there? What happened? As you stand up and begin to preach the glories of God. And then out of that crowd, now imagine this. Somebody in the outside, out in the crowd, stands up and he says, they're all speaking Armenian. I'm from Armenia. And they're speaking Armenian. Somebody else in the crowd says, no, I'm from Greece. I was born in Athens. They're all speaking Greek. Somebody else says, I'm from Moscow. They're all speaking Russian. Somebody else says, no, that's Italian. And all these people are identifying. They think we're all speaking their language. Now, that's a very unusual situation. It is not clear in Scripture... People fight over this. Whole denominations formulated over what happened right there. But it is not clear in Scripture whether those people were speaking in those languages or whether the listeners were hearing in those languages. Because the Scripture says, how hear we every man in our language wherein we were born. So the people on the outside are apparently arguing with each other. They're speaking Mede. No, that's Elamite. No, that's Parthian. No, I'm from Mesopotamia. They're speaking my language. So let me just show you something. Can I teach you something? Uh, Let's see. Let's go back about uh, 10 rows. Uh, Right there, that brother right there with their Bible open on your lap. Will you raise your hand? Good. We'll take this group of people right in here, okay? Now, when I say three, I want you to begin in English, please, in an average tone of voice. I don't want you to shout or anything else. Tell me what you did since you got up this morning. I just want you to start talking in an average tone of voice what you, what you did since you got up this morning. Are you ready? When I say three, all of you listen. That's not 120 people, but it's a good-sized crowd, and we've got a multitude here listening. All right, are you ready? One, two, three, go. Come on, a little louder if you don't mind. Come on. All right. Stop. Now then, young lady, would you just tell me what this good-looking man right here did since he got up this morning? You don't know. Do you speak English? Were you speaking English? I asked you for English. You were speaking English? But you couldn't understand him? Now, the second chapter of Acts says there were at least 5,000 men there. Remember, the Hebrews did not count women and children. So there were thousands and thousands of people there. And 120 speaking. So the possibility exists that the 120 were either speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, or speaking in tongues. And what happened was that the miracle of divine communication happened that you understood all of them to be speaking your language. Now that would be a miracle if they were all speaking English and all the listeners heard in English. Because of what, the, the, what you just experienced right there. All these people talking and talking and they're praising God and they're weeping and crying out and the crowd is feeling this and there's been this, all of this. And somebody says, what meaneth this? What does this mean? And Simon Peter, 
This is not a theologian. Look, the apostles were not particularly clever chaps. This is, this is a rough, tough, full-time professional fisherman with calluses on his hands and calluses on his brain. This is not some fancy rabbi from Jerusalem. This is a fisherman from the Galilee. And they said, what meaneth this? And Simon Peter, without benefit of thought or teaching, suddenly, spontaneously, he says, I know what this is. And he answers in a brilliant economy of language. He says, this is that. (laughs) This is that which was prophesied by Joel that there would come an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would fall upon men. Very controversial passage, even in the Old Testament. Because it says, I will fall on men and women the same. You've got to remember, he wasn't talking to a modern American congregation. He's talking to synagogues. I will send the Holy Spirit on men and women. Not only that, I will send the Holy Spirit on the elders of the congregation. Everybody's, all the elders are in favor of that. Yes, Lord. But then he says, I will also send the Holy Spirit upon mere children. And when the Holy Spirit comes on children, they will prophesy like the elders of the church. And he says, when I send the Holy Spirit upon the elders of the church, they will dream dreams like young people. You see, old people, old, old men don't dream dreams of the future. We have memories of the past. But he says when the Holy Spirit comes on an old man, he dreams about the future like he was a teenager. Oh, God, I love that verse. It hurts me when you laugh like that. He says, I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Then he goes even further. The servants that work in your house, the little handmaiden that combs your wife's hair, I will fill her with the Holy Spirit, just like she was the rabbi of the synagogue. The farm worker, the field hand that plows your dirt, I will fill him with the Holy Ghost, just like he was one of the elders of the tribes of Israel. Now, that passage was always in Joel chapter 2. They knew it was there, but it kind of laid on the floor of Judaism. It was there, but what could it mean? What What could that even mean? But it was there. The flashcard had been shown. Everybody had seen it. They knew it. Now, all of a sudden, here's men and women prophesying. There's boldness. There's authority. There's linguistic miracles happening. There's communication. There's the miraculous presence, wind and fire. One of the earliest symbols of the Holy Spirit is wind. What did I tell you? Numa. And in Hebrew, ruach. Wind. Spirit. Breath. See, the Holy Spirit always moves like a climate pattern from the high-pressure area of God's presence into the low-pressure area of human need. So when those people were crying out, Oh, God, help us, help us, help us, we need your power, we need you. All of a sudden, the high-pressure area of God's presence where the Holy Spirit is rushes into that room. Whoosh! The sound of a mighty rushing spirit, breath, wind. Gradually, the flashcard is beginning to come. There's the wind. Then there's that fire. Oh, there's the fire. One of the symbols of the Holy Spirit is the fire. The fire that was dwelt between the cherubim. The fire that leapt off of the altar and devoured the sons of Aaron. You remember that? Sons of Aaron said, we don't need daddy. We don't need the old guy. We don't need him anymore. We can light the fire. 
they went in to light the fire on the altar and the fire leapt out and killed them. And God said, I will not have strange fire. I light the fire. It's wind and fire, vapor of smoke, the signs that were the flashcards of the Old Testament. And Simon Peter begins to awaken under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to realize, I've seen this flashcard before. I've seen that one before. I've seen that one before. And then someone says, what meaneth this? And Peter says, I'll tell you what it means. This is that. This is that. This is that same Holy Spirit. This is that same wind that God breathed into Adam and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and a clay vessel became a human living soul. It's that. It's the same breath that he breathed into a valley of dry bones and there became a mighty army. It's, this is that. It's the same fire that leapt onto the, onto the altar on Mount Carmel and devoured the sacrifice of Elijah and burned the sacrifice and burned the wood and burned the stones and leapt into a water-filled trough and burned water like it was Mexican oil. He said, this is that fire. This is the fire that devoured the sons of Aaron. This is the Shekinah glory that dwelt between the cherubim. He said, I've seen these flashcards. I never knew what they meant fully, but they're here. This is that. Now, right now in this room, this is that. You see, sometimes we get the idea that the 20th century invented the Holy Ghost. That somehow or another, that we caused the Holy Ghost, that it started with us. The Holy Ghost, this church didn't invent the Holy Ghost. No denomination invented the Holy Ghost. No organization invented the Holy Ghost. What you got to pray is that the Holy Ghost invented us. But the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit. So that in the 21st century, when we sense His presence and His power, we can still say... This is nothing new. This is that. This is that which was, which was with God and in God and of God when the Holy Spirit brooded over the face of the abyss. On the first page of Genesis, the Holy Spirit of God is mentioned. And the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the abyss and reported to God, this darkened chaos is not like you. Send light. Speak creation. That same Holy Spirit is brooding over the face of the darkened places in Indianapolis tonight. There is no crack house in Indianapolis where the Holy Ghost is not in there. Seeking, searching, brooding, calling out to God the Father. Send light. This place is dark. This place is evil. This is not like you. These people are hurting. This place is wounded. There are children in here that need you. Come Father, come Father, come Father. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. Years ago, I was preaching in Sunday morning service at a little Methodist church in Georgia. After the morning service, we went to the Parsons. You know, it's a Methodist church. They had the pastor's house. was right there on the same grounds. So we ate lunch, and then the pastor said, I'm going in the backyard. He said, you just make yourself at home for the night service. I'm going in the backyard and burn some yard trash. He said, I cleaned up. I've got some leaves and things. I'm going to burn them. His wife said... It's too windy for that. I recommend you don't do that. And he, over his wife's better judgment, he went ahead and did it anyway. Every married man in the place said, Oh, oh, this way leadeth to destruction. 
And sure enough, the wind caught those sparks and carried them up into the top of a big oak tree and set it on fire. They had to call the fire department. They reached up in there with big long hook things with ropes and lopped off limbs and everything like that. It was very exciting. I'd like to burn the Methodist parsonage down, but it was exciting. That night we went to the service and they mocked that poor pastor to scorn. Every hymn had something to do with fire. We could hardly have service until a little boy opened the front door of the church and yelled, the tree is on fire. And we looked out there and that big oak tree, I don't know if you've ever seen a huge oak tree burn, but that oak tree was engulfed. This time it was too late. I mean, it was burning, limbs falling off. Every now and again, the fire would get in there. I don't know, hit a pocket of sap or something, and it would explode like a, somebody hit it with a French 88. There would just sparks go up, boom! Sparks would go up in the air. They called the fire department to come back. They had to cut the old tree down, chop it up in sections, spray it with some kind of foam chemical or whatever. Finally got it out. I said to the young fireman who seemed to be running the show there, I said, I thought you guys had the fire out. What happened? Did some mischievous Pentecostal just come to try to set it up and humiliate the Methodist preacher? What, what happened here? And he said, no. He said, it was the same fire. We thought it was confined to the extremities. We thought if we could cut off this limb or cut off that limb, that the fire was gone. But he said, what we didn't know was that the fire had gotten down into the heart of the tree. And there it burned without anybody knowing it until just the right moment. He said, I don't know what that recipe was, but just the mixture of of rosin and air and then that fire, that internal fire, would burst onto the outside and become visible. But it was the same fire. I said, son, you have just preached the greatest message on Pentecost I've ever heard in my life. The church following Pentecost gradually declined into corruption and the power systems of the world. Until the church in Europe was so corrupt, so lost in selling indulgences and relics and and power games, and and the church in Europe was a disaster. Until there was a a little Catholic priest, Martin Luther, who was so neurotic and fearful and so filled with guilt. He was in a monastery, and he would go to his father confessor, and he would constantly confess, say, Father, forgive me, I'm saying, Oh, Martin, what have you done this time? Well, he said, this time I've gone too far. There's a cup in the dining hall that has two handles on it, and we've been told to hold that cup with both handles. And this morning at breakfast, I drank out of it, only holding it with one handle. Father, forgive me. I don't want to go to hell. Until finally, in the middle of Mass, Martin fell down in the middle of the Mass in the choir loft and passed out unconscious from guilt and condemnation. So his father confessor called him in and said, Martin, I think you're crazy and you're driving us all crazy. So he said, I'm going to send you somewhere where crazy people work. He said, I'm going to send you to teach the Book of Romans at a university. He said, it's the worst punishment I can think of is for you to teach the book of Romans to German freshmen. So he sent him to the university at Wittenberg and my young Martin Luther, in an effort to get it right, he was so determined to get it right, he took the Latin Vulgate and translated it into German so that he could teach the book of Romans to these thick-headed peasants. 
and he came across the passage in the book of Romans that said the righteous shall live by faith. And the fire burst into flame in the heart of Martin Luther. And he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door, church door at the University of Wittenberg. And the Protestant Reformation burst into flame. I'm not saying the Protestant Reformation was perfect. I'm not saying the Catholic Church was altogether wrong. I'm saying it was a flame of revival and restoration and renewal. 200 years later, that flame had died down. There's a young Anglican priest in... in uh, England, who is so obsessed with living a holy life. He graduates from Oxford, and he says, I want to go to the worst place there is. I want to serve in the worst place. Tell me, Lord, where is the worst place on earth for a missionary to go? And the Lord said, Georgia. And so young John Wesley went to be, to be a missionary to the Indians in Georgia. But he never saw an Indian, never met an Indian. They made him the priest of a parish church in Savannah, Georgia, and there he fell in love with a beautiful young girl. And he proposed to her, and she rejected him. And so his feelings were so hurt, he was so carnal, that the next Sunday when communion came, he refused to serve her communion. But under Anglican law, the only reason you can refuse to serve a woman communion is if she's promiscuous. And so his, the girl's father swore out a warrant for him for defamation of character and libeling his daughter. And John Wesley fled through the Georgia swamp to his brother Charles, who was the secretary for General Oglethorpe. And they put him on a boat back to England and sent him home in failure and disgrace. And on the ship on the way home, there was a terrible storm. And there were some people down in the hold of the ship praying. And, Mar- and John Wesley ran down there to be with them. And they were praying and rejoicing. And he said, what's the matter with you people? Don't you realize we're about to die? We're about to die. They said, yes. Won't it be great? We'll be in heaven in just a few minutes. And he said, how do you know? And they said, if we live over this, come to our prayer meeting in Aldersgate Street in London. They did live over it. They got back to London. He went to the prayer meeting in Aldersgate Street And that night, because John Wesley spoke German as well as English, that night they read Martin Luther's preface to the book of German, to the book of Romans in German. And Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. This is that. This is that same fire that was in the upper room. It's that same fire that touched Martin Luther. It's the same fire that touched John Wesley. It's the same fire that hit the holiness movement, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. It's the same fire that leapt into the bosom of the holiness movement. It's the same fire that burst into flame at Azusa Street and caused the worldwide Pentecostal movement. It's the same fire that came in the 70s and touched the the, the classical denominations and caused the charismatic renewal movement. It's the same fire. The 1970s. It was a strange time. The revival of the Holy Spirit didn't happen in Pentecostal churches, and it didn't happen in non-denominational, interdenominational, as you interdenominational churches like this. Do you know why it didn't happen here? There weren't any churches like this. In the 70s, there were no interdenominational churches. You could be a Methodist or a Baptist Jews. Had a few stray Lutherans over here and some Anglicans, nobody knew what they believed. But most of them. In Indiana, you were a Methodist or a Baptist. And you couldn't have a name. You couldn't have a church that was named Crossroads or 
or evangelists. They had to be something. The Jesus movement happened. Kids came home with dirty bell-bottom trousers and dirty feet. They said, we've been smoking dope. We're sick of it. We went out to San Francisco to find the summer of love, and what we found was a Zodiac killer. What we thought was going to be freedom and love has turned into drug addiction and, and AIDS, and we're sick and we're dying. But on the way home, we stopped in a park, and they were singing songs and strumming a guitar and singing about Jesus, and they said, we're not getting high anymore. We found Jesus. And they came back to their moms and dads in their $500,000 houses back on the East Coast, and they had basement prayer meetings, and the Holy Ghost fell in those basement prayer meetings. And they had Methodists and Baptists and, and Lutherans and, and Anglicans and Catholics. In the late 70s, in Notre Dame, uh, in Notre Dame uh, Coliseum, in the, in the Notre Dame football stadium, there were 110,000 Catholics being filled with the Holy Spirit. Nuns and priests speaking in tongues, praying with people for healing. Independent churches, interdenominational churches began to rise up. It was a great, exciting time. It was very challenging. I was pastoring in the United Methodist Church in 1975. Lost as a ball in high weeds. Not clue one what was going on. People in my church began to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more threatening than a layman who has had an experience with God that you don't understand. And I said, what meaneth this? They were nice, safe, dead Methodists, and now all of a sudden they just have gone wonky. I remember one Sunday morning, we had a visitor in our church, just a little small church, tiny little church about the size of this one section right here. We had a visitor. That was always exciting. He was a businessman-looking type with a nice, expensive suit on. <laughs> that was very exciting. Everything was going fine until we came to the doxology. Anybody remember the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But we were singing it, you know, in our usual way. And this stranger in our house put his hands right up in the air. In my church! Put his hands up in the air like that. I'm sending him telepathic messages from the pulpit. Put your hands down. I went to the door, shake hands with the people as they were leaving, but I was waiting for that stranger. I need to sort this thing out before it got loose. <laughs> so the people are coming out. Yeah, yeah, go get some chicken. Get away. And <laughs> that stranger came to the door. I grabbed his hand, and I said, Now, sir, I need to tell you something. We love to have visitors in this church. You're always welcome, but I want to tell you something. We don't do that kind of thing in this church. I said, You, I'm sure there are churches that like that kind of stuff. We don't like it. You want to do that? There are other places. You're welcome here, but you're not welcome to do that. All he did, put his hands up. I said, you're not welcome here. He didn't get angry. He didn't argue with me. He just reached over and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Pastor, do you have the joy of the Lord? God, fury. I don't even know how to describe it. Murderous rage filled, filled me. I thought if I'd get my thumbs around your larynx, you'd think joy of the Lord. Made me so angry. I, I preached a six-week series on joy. It's an amazing thing to watch a really angry man preach on joy. 
We're going to have joy in this church if I have to kill somebody. In 1975, I careened as close to a nervous breakdown as you can get. Our marriage was in trouble. Allison and I were struggling. My ministry was at an end. And I was forced, literally forced, to attend a conference for Methodist preachers to study the charismatic renewal movement. We had charismatics in our churches like, like termites. We didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> we didn't run them out. I ran a bunch of them out. But we didn't know what you, we couldn't smoke them out. We didn't know what to do with them. So they said, we're going to have this conference, 150 Methodist preachers from Georgia to understand the charismatic renewal movement. And they said, in order to do that, we'll bring a real live charismatic minister and let him talk to us. (laughs) So, okay, that'd be great. So they got Dr. Ralph Wilkerson from the Melody Land Christian Center in Anaheim, California, largest charismatic coach on the West Coast. When this guy came in the room, I was just horrified. I said, oh, my God. In the first place, he had on white shoes in December. I mean, I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that. In the second place, he named his church Melody Land. Melody Land. You can't name a, you can't name a church Melody Land. First Baptist, I understand that. Antioch Assembly of God. Calvary Methodist. That make, you can't name a church Melody Land and wear white shoes in December. He hit that room full of 150, said, they invited him, said, would you come and speak to 150 Methodist preachers about the Holy Spirit? He said, I'll pay my way. <laughs> he hit that room full of Methodist preachers like a hydrogen bomb. I've never experienced anything like it. He spoke for about 20 minutes on the Holy Spirit. I was sitting in the back of my arms crossed. He didn't say one word I could disagree with. I kept listening for him to make a mistake. So he didn't say anything I disagreed with. He got all finished, spoke about 20 minutes. He closed his Bible and he said, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> that's enough of that? You can't end a Methodist sermon. That's enough. That's enough of that? I said, you can't. You, he hadn't even read his poem yet. He said... I don't believe we ought to ever talk about the Holy Spirit in a vacuum. He said, I'm just going to invite him to fill this room and that you manifest his presence among us. And he began to pray. And God is my witness. The temperature in that room must have gone up 30 degrees. We were sweating. We were just sweating. A sense of God's presence and power in that room. He said, now the Holy Spirit is here. He's going to heal some people. He spoke to a friend of mine. As God would have it, he only spoke to people I knew. Spoke to a friend of mine. He said, sir, God reveals to me you have diabetes. I knew Calvin had diabetes. He's shooting himself in the thigh with insulin twice a day to stay alive. How did this guy know? He lives in Anaheim. He said, you have diabetes? He said, yes, I do. He said, stand up and God's going to heal you. I thought to myself, Calvin is not standing up for this jack leg. (laughs) Calvin shot to his feet. He said, something's happening. Something's happening to me. Something's happening to me. That's been since 1975. He's never even been on a diet since then. Healed, totally healed of diabetes right in that moment. He turned to another friend of mine. 
had glasses on. His glasses were as thick as the bottom of ashtrays. And even with it, he still, he couldn't even read his own text. He had to have his wife come to the platform and read his text because he couldn't see. He said, sir, take your glasses off and stand up and receive your sight. I was in the back row with my arms crossed. I said, I did. I literally, I snorted. My friend stood to his feet and pulled his glasses off and he screamed like a woman. He threw those glasses across the room like a Frisbee and he said, oh my God. He said, I can see. I can see. I knew exactly what to do. I hit the door at a dead run. (laughs) Listen, I'm telling you, color me gone. I was out. I went all the way to the parking lot. I came back in. I went back. The third time I went all the way to my car. I went all the way to my car. I'm standing with my hand on the door of my car. Then it occurred to me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have a four credit A on the book of Acts at the postgraduate level. I don't think I'm going to be intimidated about pneumatology by somebody whose church is named Melody Land. I said, I think I know about pneumatology. I went back up, sat down. Dr. Wilkerson said, the Lord says we're going to have a word of knowledge, word of prophecy. We're going to have a word of prophecy. Here's a strange thing. I took first and second Corinthians in graduate school and I had never heard the phrase word of prophecy used in a sentence. I said, word of prophecy? What does he think? Isaiah's going to drop from the ceiling? What does that even mean, word of prophecy? You have to understand this is a Methodist church in 1975. We didn't even know what he was talking about. And he said, God is going to give one of you a word of prophecy and when he does, I want you to stand. And the man stood up on the front row This man was the most liberal Methodist preacher in North Georgia. I'm telling you, I don't even think he believed in the resurrection. It was a classic case of Balaam's donkey. This guy stood up. His face was as white as your jersey right there. Just stood up. His face drained. Lifted up his hands and he said, well, boys, it's me. And he said, the crazy thing is, I don't think I believe in this. But he said, I was sitting right there, and the thought came in my mind, that man is going to call for a word of prophecy. Stand up and open your mouth, and I will fill it. And he lifted up his hand, and he said, there's going to come a move of the Holy Spirit, and it's beginning now in this room. And when he said that, it was like somebody hit this over-educated nincompoop in the back of the head with a ball-peen hammer. I shot straight out in the middle of the floor and cried out, Oh, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. The room, people were weeping and crying. And Ralph Wilkerson, God bless his heart, left the platform and walked out and got down on his knees in the floor. I was weeping, crying, calling out to God. And he picked me up put his arms under there and put my head on his shoulder like that and whispered in my ear. And I braced myself. He said, if he just said anything, you know, if he just said the wrong thing, all right, you're going to talk in tongues. All right, we're going to straighten your sinful life out. You know what he said? He said, brother pastor, I love you. You know, if we'd love on people, quit trying to shake tongues out of them, maybe God could do something. He said, brother pastor, I love you. 
I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. I said, I'm in trouble, mister. My life is a mess. My marriage is a wreck. I'm just about to resign from the ministry. He said, wouldn't you like to receive the Holy Spirit? I opened my mouth to say no. No. What's the matter with you people? No. I don't believe in that. There's no second work of grace. I don't want the Holy Spirit. I don't want any of that. I'm a saved, born-again Christian. No. The answer is no. And I heard my own mouth say, yes, please, that's what I want. I was flabbergasted. I realized that for once my, my hungry spirit had cried out and not my overeducated brain. He said, then pray with me this simple prayer. It was a simple prayer. Lord, I give you my life. Everything I am, everything I have, my ministry, my marriage, my future, my past, I yield to you fully. It's all yours. I was finished anyway. I was ruined when I give it to God. I said, yes, Lord, it's all yours. He said, now I'm going to lay my hands on you. And that I didn't want. I had been taught in seminary that Pentecostal evangelists would carry a buzzer in the palm of their hand. And they got close to you, they popped. Oh, God, he's going to buzz me. I know he's going to buzz me. I just braced. I don't want him to buzz me. And he just reached over and put his fingertips on my forehead. And he said, my dear brother, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, receive thou the Holy Ghost. I don't know what happened to 149 Methodist preachers in that room. I only know what happened to me. The Holy Spirit filled my life. Chains broke. I stood up free and liberated, and my ministry was transformed. I was weeping and laughing at the same time. And he said, open your mouth and praise the Lord. I thought he wanted me to say, praise the Lord. I'd heard charismatics do that, praise the Lord. Always seemed to me they said it in the wrong place, frankly. My grandmother just died. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> really? But I knew God was doing something inside me. And I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to endanger it. So if he wanted me to say praise the Lord, I was going to say it. He said, lift up your hands and praise the Lord. I lifted up my hands. And for the second time in about a minute and a half, I heard my own mouth speaking. I couldn't even understand what I was saying. I thought, oh my God, I've been asking for a nervous breakdown for four years now. I can't even speak English. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, this is not a nervous breakdown, it's much worse. This is tongues. <laughs> I preached against tongues for seven years. I, I railed on it. I mocked it. I mocked it. I preached against tongues. I looked up at him. I mean, here's this overeducated Methodist preacher weeping, crying, laughing, and speaking. I looked up at Dr. Wilkerson and I said, Sir, do you think that could be tongues? <laughs> I mean, we have to forgive him, you know? He just burst out laughing. He just started laughing. He said, Son, if that's not tongues, there's no such things. I said, What do you think I ought to do? He said, Open your mouth and let her rip. Afterward, things began to calm down a little bit. Dr. Wilkerson called me up on the platform. And I was standing there. I said, what do you want? He said, see if anybody has any questions. I thought, what? So one of my friends raised his hand and said, Mark, what, what happened? 
I said, the only thing I can tell you is, this is that. This is that which was prophesied by Joel. This is that which happened in the upper room. This is that which John Wesley told us about and we quit preaching. I said, this is that. This is that same Holy Spirit. Another friend said, well, Mark, what difference is it going to make in your life? I said, I don't know. Just had it five minutes. Can you give me a little while? I said, what I know is I feel full and free. And I said, there's a man who put his hands up in my church about two years ago, and I got to find him because I got to apologize because I, I don't know why, but I just feel like putting my hands up. <laughs> this is that same Holy Spirit. I've prayed with people to receive the Holy Spirit on every inhabited continent of the globe. Hundreds of thousands of people. And here's your question, isn't it? If you were to say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit tonight, right now, tonight. If you say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. What would it feel like? What would happen? What would happen in you and to you? Isn't that your question? And here's the problem. I don't know. When I was young, I felt like I had to have an answer for everything. The older I get, I find great delight in saying, beats me. I don't know. I don't know because I don't know where you are with God. I don't know what God needs to do in you. Let's let God vary the level of everybody's experience. Let's let God do what he wants to do in us the way he wants to do it. Let God be as wonderfully creative in everybody else as he is in us. I've prayed with people who received the Holy Spirit and seen them weep, weep. That's what I did. I wept. I prayed and seen people laugh. I remember the first time I ever saw that. First United Methodist Church in Douglasville, Georgia. Very upscale Methodist church. Little old lady came forward. It was a Methodist church. Anybody here grow up in the Methodist church? Did you? And, oh, we scattered all over the world, didn't we? And uh, at a communion rail, you know, that ran one of those wooden communion rails. And that little old lady came and knelt there, and she had her hands all clenched up like this. I went, I said, ma'am, would you like to receive the Holy Spirit? She said, yes. I led her in a prayer. I laid my hand on her little gray head, and I said, receive the Holy Spirit. And she shocked me. She threw her head back and began to laugh. She, he, hawed. I mean, she laughed, and I was so offended. I was offended. I got up and left and went back up on the, on the platform. I said, Lord, look at silly old woman. Laughing, laughing at the Holy Ghost. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, what's the matter with you? He said, that woman has lived her life like a clenched fist for 60 years. And I have filled her with my joy. And I have turned her ashes to laughter. Now, what's the matter with you? And I looked over at her and it looked like Jesus was kneeling down beside of her. And it looked like he was laughing. And it looked like he was laughing at me. (laughs) I've seen people speak in tongues. My wife received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And she just bowed her sweet little head and began to thank God. I remember the first time I ever saw anybody fall out. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. But I had never seen it. I was a Methodist preacher. I was 28 years old. Never seen that. I went on a mission trip to Mexico. We were in a little tiny church about the size of a chicken house. 
And I preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and asked if anybody wanted to receive. And this big lady came, mean la gorda mucha. This woman came up. She came up to the front and wanted to receive the Holy Spirit. And I reached out and laid my hands on her head. And she fell backward from her heels like a domino on a bare concrete floor. Her head bounced like a basketball. And I thought God had killed her. I, did, I thought that she had come up with sin in her life and God had stricken her dead. You know, the thought of Ananias and Sapphira came in my mind. I was shaken. I could hardly walk. I said, oh my God. You know, Jesus is in the house and he's killing Mexicans. And it was... Oh, I was shaken. I was shaken. And the old Pentecostal evangelist came over to me and he said, you've never seen that before. And I said, my God, no. He said, I said, does that happen very often? And he said, oh, yes. I said, what is that? He said, well, she's been slain in the spirit. And I said, I thought so. I mean, slain in the spirit, that's a very militant turn of phrase. Slain in the spirit, I didn't even know he was armed. I've seen people fall out. I've seen people laugh. I've seen people weep. Here's the thing. There's no rules. There's no rules. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is just like out back. There's no rules. Y'all don't ever go to Outback Steakhouse? It's all right. There's no rules. You write God a blank check. You say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. However, whatever, however it feels, whatever, anyway, just fill me. Just fill me with your Holy Spirit. And he comes with all that you need at this time in your life. The fullness of his presence that brings the earmarks of his own character. Joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things that are like him. Gifts that are like him. The right gifts to the right person at the right time in the right way. We don't have to sort it out and have rules and you have to do this and you have to do that and that can't happen and this must happen. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Let me tell you something else. That verse can also be said this way. Where there's liberty, there's the Spirit of the Lord. He comes where there is liberty, freedom for him to act, and he brings liberty when he comes. When we set him free, he sets us free. And when God begins to move in a church in a unique and powerful way, so that teenagers who have been intimidated about their faith in a public high school begin to operate in manifest power like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our youngest daughter, who is on her way home from Thailand tonight where she's been in missions with our girls' home, When she was 15, she had a bad summer, a summer of rebellion. I I don't know what happens. I think teenagers wake up on their 15th birthday and say, I know what I'll do. I'll go insane. I think I'll make my parents insane too. She had a bad summer. But near the end of the summer, she gave her heart to the Lord and she received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you about my lack of faith. Am I the only adult in the place that's ever seen summer religion melt when school starts? Go off to summer camp, have a great experience with God. As soon as football season starts, it's all gone. So I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
one week I was away preaching in some godforsaken foreign country, I think Michigan, if I remember right. And my wife called and said, I'm going to put Emily on the phone. Something happened at school today, and I think you better hear about it. I said, oh, put her on. Put her on the phone. Daddy, are you in trouble? Are you in trouble? I don't think so. I said, I think you'd know. She said, Daddy, will you let me tell this? I said, what is it? She said, since I received the baptism of the Spirit, she said, I have been, I have been praying about the right moment to witness at school. Just waiting. She said, today in the cafeteria, is a big, huge public high school. Cafeteria in that public high school was, was barely maintained pandemonium. She said, today in the cafeteria, the Lord said, now's your moment. She's a cute little blonde, five feet tall. This looks like a million bucks. She turned around to the football player sitting next to her and batted her little blue eyes and said, I need to make an announcement. Would you help me? He jumped to his feet and he said, everybody, shut up. He said, this little girl wants to say something and anybody that talks answers to me. He said, go ahead. She stood up on the table, climbed up on the cafeteria table. And she said, I don't want to make this announcement anonymously because I don't want to be a coward. She said, my name is Emily Rutland. I'm in the 11th grade. She said, if you want to ask me about this later, I'll give you my phone number. You can call me. But she said, I see you come in here every day and I know what you're looking for because I was looking for it. She said, this summer, Christ has come into my life. He's filled me with his Holy Spirit, taken away my sin and my guilt and my fear. And I have an announcement to make. If nobody has ever told you, then let me tell you. Jesus loves you. And he died for you. I said, oh my God. I had terrible vision. People from the ACLU dragging her off the table. You know. I said, what happened? She said, Daddy, you're not going to believe it. I said, oh, yes, I am. What happened? She said, Daddy, they stood up and gave me a standing ovation. They stood up and gave me a standing ovation. A couple of months ago, I met a young pastor from Tennessee. And he said, Mark Rutland. He said, you wouldn't happen to have a daughter named Emily. I said, yes, that's my baby daughter. He said, Dr. Rutland, I pastor a church in Tennessee today. I'm a spirit-filled pastor of an independent interdenominational church. Because I was in the cafeteria one day when your daughter stood up and spoke with such power and authority. And I went home and in my bedroom that night, I said, Lord, whatever you did in her, do it in me. And I said, I said, the only thing I have to say about that is, this is that. This is that. That same Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Well, ask him.